The average farm here in North America is still family owned and operated. That hasn't changed much. What has changed is that most of these farms are now much larger businesses. And Evan Shouts sees a big need for farm business owners to start thinking more strategically. I think that's the difference between farms that can grow and farms that can't. Certain ones are prepared where they can just write the check or they can take advantage or they've met with their landlord so they have the relationships in place. A lot of guys don't realize relationships and network are a significant portion of farming. That growth might show up in acres or revenues, but it can also mean growth in people and processes to free up time and headspace for farmers. Labor as it is right now, human resources is one of the biggest risks we have in this industry. and We're not really doing anything to fix it. Evan is a co-founder and lead coach of Farmer Coach, which offers executive training for farmers who want to modernize their businesses. The biggest change in ag going forward, I think, is going to be between the years. I think it's mindset. I, I don't think, I mean, some people will say ag tech. Some guys will say, you know, consolidation. I think the guys who can work on their mindset and become stronger in terms of management, they're going to be the successful farms going forward. We're talking about the entrepreneurial mindset and farm strategy with Evan Shout on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, Ag Nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hammerich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode and every episode this quarter is brought to you by the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders like you to implement it. And that's your Soy Checkoff. Whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to help get more from every acre, working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line. Having a sound plan delivers results, and you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your soy checkoff. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org. And be sure to stay tuned to the end of today's episode for a fascinating spotlight segment with Mac Marshall, really enjoyable guy to talk to. He's the vice president of market intelligence for the United Soybean Board. We talk a little commodity level strategy strategy after this great conversation with Evan about farm management strategy. And thank you once again to the Soy Checkoff for supporting agricultural innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Evan Shout. I had the privilege of hosting Evan's business partner, Christian Hebert, on the show last year, back in episodes 302 and 303. These were very popular episodes and the interview was so rich, I ended up splitting it into two different episodes from the same interview, which I almost never do. Uh, but they're very popular talking about farm strategy and farm operating systems. We're going to follow up on that content with today's episode, where Evan's going to talk about the entrepreneurial mindset and how to apply that mindset to running a modern farm business. We get into a lot of interesting stuff here today. Evan is the president and co-founder of Maverick Ag, a business consulting and risk management firm in Western Canada. Canada. He also sits as president, co-founder, and lead coach at Farmer Coach, an education and coaching program for primary producers both in Canada and the U.S. These organizations fall under the Hebert Group of Companies, which also includes Hebert Grain Ventures, a 30,000-acre grain and oilseed operation in southeast Saskatchewan, where Evan serves as the chief financial officer. And I kick off our conversation right there by asking Evan if he always knew growing up on a farm that he was destined to be a farm CFO. 
honestly, growing up, I was one of the farms that probably needed a CFO to tell you the truth. So grew up on a small family farm, went to university, did the public accounting thing for a decade. And honestly, until I came across and started working for Christian, it, it didn't quite become clear. This different side of agriculture, I guess you could call it, is the financial, the size of the farms, the consolidation of acres. I think it just kind of fell into my lap, to tell you the truth. Call it a lucky story or what, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, When I left public accounting, I didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today. Huh. What did you think you'd be doing? I thought I'd be doing projection and numbers for the rest of my life. So let's call it sitting at a desk and looking at spreadsheets. And it became very clear very quickly on the consulting side that guys, their, their numbers, they knew enough to be dangerous. But the real issues were more on the human resources, the entrepreneurial side, the, the massive growth in agriculture had just kind of got to guys quicker than they were ready for it. And, and that was probably the biggest surprise to me is I, I thought I was going to be a number cruncher. Yeah. Well, let's start there with setting a real clear idea of what a CFO is. I think there is a misconception on a lot of people that a CFO is that a number cruncher, somebody in the spreadsheet, somebody making sure the accounting goes well. You know, how do you define a true farm CFO? So I think, like you said, this, the CFO thing's been a bit misguided. And I think it's oftentimes it's, it's mixed in with controller. And in a lot of businesses and other industries, a controller is the bookkeeper, you know, reconciles the numbers, does projections. That's kind of the role that I think most people think I probably do for most farms. And honestly, I haven't been in a meeting in the last year where that's anything I talked about. I, I have some partners in the business that, that focus more on that data side. But for me, it's been 30,000 foot strategy. You know, what's, what's coming next in the industry? What do we have to prepare for? Human resources, you know, equipment multiples. Farming no longer is, is small business. And I think that's the main aspect is these growing farms have never had to deal with people and the cost of productions we're seeing. And, and that's where it took me is it took me outside the financial bubble and more into the actual being part of the operation. Yeah. And I know your business partner, Christian Hebert, he was on the show uh, back in episode 302 and 303. Uh, he's a visionary. So he's really thinking big picture, too. How do you kind of divvy up who, who thinks about what or who approaches what? Or how, how does that sort of partnership work? So I think probably the, the easiest way to make it clear is if, if anybody's heard of Colby, it's a, it's a behavior tool that a lot of businesses use. It, it's kind of based on your attitudes, your behaviors, how you function day to day. For Christian, he's more of, like you said, he's the visionary. He's got a lot of big, big time thoughts and they come at him really quick. I'm more of a sit down and implement and, you know, find the data. Takes me probably a week to figure out what he can figure out in a couple hours, but I'll make sure that it's implemented and, and created for the business. So that's, that's more my strength is actually creating his ideas and bringing them to life. Right. Yeah. And in that episode with Christian, I talked to him about how he knew he needed to scale the business to the point where he could afford someone like you. Uh, but I also, the skeptical side of me says, well, no, wait a minute, Evan's got a farm background, public accounting background. He's a strategic thinker. He's ambitious and he's like available. You know, that sounds like kind of a unicorn as well. I mean, is it realistic that other farms could do what Christian did, which is scale to the point where they could afford someone like you, but then actually find someone like you? I'd like to say it's not ego, but I, I'm going to say they're few and far between. Um, right. No, they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, when I when I left public accounting, I, I like to call myself a recovering accountant. I, I was the guy that sat at the desk and focused on the numbers and, and didn't see the vision. Three years working with Christian, obviously, I've been fed a lot of uh, 
a lot of that 30,000 foot talk. And it's, it's opened my mind more to entrepreneurship. I mean, I've taken courses like strategic coach out of Toronto. It was kind of one of my prerequisites. Christian wanted me to attend it to get kind of my bad habits of, of number crunching out of my head and, and look more at operations from an entrepreneurial standpoint, which, you know what, it's been a lot more fun and it's a lot more interesting from that side of the business. Yeah. Yeah. And Christian, I remember talked about strategic coach when him and I were talking. Um, now you guys have launched farmer coach. Is that essentially, is that strategic coach, but with, with a farm emphasis? It, it's got a little bit of a mix. So we wanted to bring the entrepreneur mindset into agriculture, which is just, first of all, realizing that every farmer is an entrepreneur. They have their own business. They built it up. They have created structure that that's what they've done. They just didn't realize it. So that was part of what we got from strategic coach was just getting that mindset across to producers. The second part was uh, Christian attended TPAP back in 09 and that's the Texas A&M course in the U S and I think it brought a lot of processes and business structure to a farm. And obviously we always have the conversation on family farms. We, we like the lifestyle and that's the main focus. And I think with the, the growth of farms and the change of the industry, it's forced guys to become a business. So we wanted to bring that TPAP style of training also into the program. So you get a little bit of both. You get the mindset and the, the visionary speech, but you also get the education of you know the financials, the human resource processes, all those things that you probably didn't get going to university for agriculture. Right. Well, let, let's do a quick hypothetical uh, here. And, you know, let's say that I'm a, I'm a farmer um, in Missouri. I, you know, inherited 500 acres that we own. I've been really trying to get out and rent more land. I've got a little bit of land that I rent, been trying to get more land. But, you know, on one hand, I'm barely making enough for me and my wife, so I can't really afford to hire anybody. Uh, land doesn't seem to be coming available. The best thing in my mind that I can do is just like, produce as many bushels per acre as I can with as little cost as I can. And that's just enveloped my, you know, kind of consumed my, my mindset. How might somebody like that, you know, benefit from something like farmer coach? So, so I think the main point there is, and you're not incorrect. There's, there's a significant amount of the industry that that's the thought process, right? The, the margins have got tighter. Let's pull back. Let's protect our cost of production. Let's, you know, live year to year. And I think the biggest thing is, as farmers, we only get so many years at this. We only get to turn our inventory once a year, which gives us very little time to actually take advantage. So it's more we have to get the focus away from costs, first of all, and more to return on investment. So, so what are we actually getting back? So if I spend 20 hours a day in a tractor, am I missing out on marketing? Am I missing out on the strategic planning or getting the debt in the position that I can expand if an opportunity came up? So it's first of all, figuring out that unique ability of, of what am I good at? Because I mean, putting someone in a tractor today with the amount of technology we have, that's not the hardest job on the farm. The hardest job on the farm is sitting and figuring out the strategy. And like you said, where do we go from here? If we're, if we're just making ends meet, how can we actually create more revenue so that we have the ability to grow and through growth, hiring good people and having them do their unique abilities? It, it's kind of a compounding effect, right? And Strategy is a word I think everybody loves to use, but sometimes it could be a little vague about like what that looks like in practice. Is there an example you could share of like somebody who really brought strategy into their farm business and how it shaped it over time? So, so I think the biggest part is I, I've got a client that since back in my days at MNP used to tell me that growth was never coming. He was in a very highly competitive area. He wasn't going to get a chance at land. Their farm was the size it was going to be going forward. 
And I think the biggest thing was we, we strategized for the opportunity that could be. So we created the debt. We, we essentially built his whole debt leverage based on if an opportunity came, we'd be ready. We built up the working capital. We got lots of cash in the business, kind of that treasure chest mentality. And then for 12 years straight, and I, I'm not even lying, for 12 years straight, we had some kind of growth, whether it was in acres, whether it was on the livestock side, it literally every year something just happened to come in, whether it was a quarter here or a quarter there or a thousand acres here. Obviously, we're, we're bigger scale farmers up here than the 500 acre example, but he had the pessimistic mindset that it wasn't coming, but we still had a strategy in case it did. And when it did, he was ready. He could sign the check. He didn't have to get financing. It was already in place. It's that mentality of being prepared for opportunities, because I think that's the difference between farms that can grow and farms that can't. Certain ones are prepared where they can just write the check or they can take advantage or they've met with their landlord. So they have the relationships in place. A lot of guys don't realize relationships and network are a significant portion of farming. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we hear the expression a lot, like you create your own luck and, um, I do think that's true, but a lot of times people reduce that to mean just like, if you're working hard, you're creating your own luck. That's part of it. But another part of it is like putting yourself in a position to be lucky. And I think that's what we're talking about here. And so with that strategic planning process, you know, how much are you advising farmer clients to, to spend, you know, how much time in that kind of strategic planning process? So I, th I think that's going to be dependent on the size of the farm, obviously, to start with. I mean, if, if you're a smaller farm and you're just got to get the work in, and like you said, you don't have the ability to have the staff, it's going to be limited. Now, that's not to say I don't want you to sit down once a quarter and go through, you know, what are the goals for this quarter? What are we trying to achieve? What's the strategy? Because I think that's important in any business, not just farming. The larger scale farms, I think what the biggest shift has been, guys are starting to act like CEOs. So the CEO does not work on the, the manufacturing floor. He's not turning bolts, right? So it's that mentality is probably the hardest one to change in farms because I think that's what they grew up with. You know, how much time I spent in the tractor, in the dirt, that was considered success. How many hours I can put in a week. And, and that mentality for a lot of the growing farms has been the biggest change is that they see that as the CEO or as the owner of that business, their job has to be to have the strategy and the visionary. Like you said, you talked to Christian about it. They had to shift that mindset away from operations and more into big picture. Right. And can that happen at all different scales or is there a certain threshold you kind of need to hit where it's like, all right, you have enough people doing some of the day to day that you can actually open yourself up for that. So I think I'll go back to the coaching program. So we got farms from anywhere 700 acres to 20,000. I mean, they're all in the same groups. They have those discussions. And I mean, the first session, we make you sit down and tell us what, what does 10 years look like on your farm? And for a lot of guys, that's the hardest part of the whole course is you tell me what 10 years ahead looks like or what you want it to look like. Most guys have never thought that far out. And if they have, they never wrote it down. It doesn't matter if you're 700 acres or 20,000 that has to be down on paper for you to actually achieve it. And I mean, we can go into the entrepreneur discussions on goal setting, but when you write it down, it becomes real. And then from that 10 years, okay, to get there, what does three years look like? What does one year look like? And then what does each quarter, what do I have to achieve in the next four months to hit that one-year plan that's going to hit my 10-year plan? And, and that doesn't matter on size of farm. That, and that can be personal goals too. I mean, let's say you're working 3,000 hours a year on the farm you're probably not spending a lot of time with your kids and your wife. Maybe that's the goal. 
because the goal doesn't always have to be growth. The goal can be personal, you know, freedom of time. We like to use freedom of time as our, as our number one metric of, are you actually stuck in the business or are you able to, you know, enjoy the lifestyle that we always say is so good with agriculture? In order to have it, you have to enjoy it. So maybe that's the goal. Maybe the goal in 10 years is to be able to spend 500 hours away from the farm with your family. Well, what do we have to do to get you there? No, I think that's a really good point. Doesn't always have to be the acreage growth. And you also bring up a good point that I've experienced firsthand, which is it's not always so easy to have a vision of where you want to be in 10 years. You could say like, okay, I'm farming, you know, back to the example, farming 500 now. If I was farming 1500, then maybe I could actually hire somebody. So I'd, I'd like to triple in the next 10 years. But at the same time, I think maybe there's a tendency to just say that because it would sound good if you were able to say that rather than really thinking through the lifestyle. So I like what you said there about maybe it's like, you know, I don't spend near enough time with my kids. And so what do I need to do to make that happen? That's a good starting place. Yeah. And I think that was also one of the surprises we had is I, I assumed it would be an acre goal. Obviously, I work at Keep It Grain Ventures and that's always been one of our goals was size. And, and it just happens to come and people's the other goal we have. So I made the assumption going into the program that that would be one of them. And honestly, most of the guys in the program, it, it's not. It's they. Some of them want to diversify. Some of them want human resources. I've got lots of guys that have hired guys since they started because they never they never knew what they were missing out until we actually started talking about it, right? So until it went down on paper, they didn't realize. And then they start hearing some of the other farms in the room talk about the freedom they've got from having that new hire or training somebody. And all of a sudden it clicked and they're like, well, I, I can do this. I just have to put a focus on it. And I've been so busy in the business that I've never actually had that thought or else I've never acted on it. Right. And I know farmer coach has a number of mentors. Do, do those mentors essentially serve the CFO role for the, the farmers that they're mentoring? Is that is that a little bit of what they do is kind of like that uh, having that somebody strategic looking at your problems and working through them with you? Yeah, so it's obviously it's one coach per room at all, at all times. And, and the biggest thing with that is it's more the discussions you're having as a group and not just the coach. So the coach is there to give you the entrepreneurial mindset and have those discussions. And honestly, I just I act as a mediator a lot of times of just, you know, driving discussion. And what you'll find is that forcing these guys and I say forcing because a lot of farms are introverted and that's not their comfort zone. But actually having them, you know, tell the guy across the table, this is what I want to do in 10 years, then getting some feedback of, you know, this is probably something you should try if that's your goal. And then we've got guys that have done, like you said, they've got to 20,000 acres. They know some of the mistakes they've made. They've known the pitfalls. They can actually guide some of the guys and then vice versa. Some of the smaller farms have got this, you know, off farm income in order to supplement. They're guiding some of the bigger guys on, you know, HR policies. They've got another business that they needed to hire. This is how it worked. You know, that that discussion, I feel, on top of just the the mentorship and the navigating is is probably the biggest thing. Hmm. And you mentioned HR earlier, you know, with human resources, what are the common mistakes that a lot of farmers are getting wrong or missing the boat on when it comes to human resources? Obviously, they want to hire and keep people, but like, it sounds like maybe they're not having some of the processes in place to do that effectively. I think there's two things. The, the first one is that in agriculture, we, we like to use the word cost a lot. So when we looked at you know hiring, it was always a cost. So we went down to the, the local shop, we got the cheapest employee, and then we put them on a $2 million drill. We're the only industry I know that would actually do that. The construction industry doesn't have their least, you know, least experienced person sitting on a, on a track hoe that's worth a million bucks. So 
that was the first thing is getting the guys to quit looking at it as a cost and looking at it as, you know, as an investment. You want to find a good employee. You want to find someone who's got additional skills, not that can just drive a tractor. And you want to pay them more because honestly, if you pay them more, the return will be much higher than, you know, finding somebody that you can pay less that's not experienced. So that, that was the first one. The second one was the processes. I mean, most of these farms are getting very high equity. And in terms of, you know, value, any business in the city with that value probably has an HR manager. So they got processes. They have somebody in charge of it. Farmers don't. That's one of the areas where we don't have those skills. So it's more or less, how can we get the processes in place, you know, for the correct way to hire, whether it's hire slow, fire fast, whether it's the behavior things I talked about, such as Colby, you know, how can we hire the right people and make sure that the right, you know, attitude, they fit our values, our behaviors, and then retention, you know, once we have them, are we actually offering them a career? Because in agriculture, farm labor is kind of a dirty word. It's I'm going to sit on a rock picker for the next 20 years of my life. And, and most guys don't see it as a career. That's probably one of the narratives we needed to change the most is you can have a career on farms. I mean, I'm, I'm part of HGV. I have an equity stake in the farm. Obviously, I left public accounting for that. There had to be a reason I left. And that was it is I, I was going to be an equity stakeholder in a farm. And you don't hear that very often is most, most people don't have that mentality of career and working your way up to an owner, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I hate, and I, I know people will disagree with this, but I hate in agriculture is this term hired hand. You know, we, we referred to someone as a hired hand. It's like, they're not even a person, they're a hand. They're there to just give me a hand. And I know that's not how people mean it, but uh, that is just indicative. I think of what you're saying that that's how we look at them. Like, oh boy, when I, you know, when I was a hired hand, I only made 10 bucks an hour and you know, now they want $60,000 a year. It's like, okay, well, first of all, let's stop thinking of them as a hired hand, right? Yeah. And I, I think it, our eyes got opened a little bit. We had, uh, we had a session after harvest one year where we bring our employees in and we kind of debrief how the harvest went and things we can improve on. And, and one of our guys literally told us a story. His biggest complaint is he used to be on the rigs and he went into town, went drinking with his buddies and they all made fun of him. And they, you know, they call him a hired hand or a or farm laborer. And it's a dirty term. And from that standpoint, it was we need to create something that somebody wants to be. So if we go into a school and you ask a, a person in grade five, what do you want to be when you grow up? There's not many that are going to say a farmer unless they grew up on a farm where doctor, you know, electrician, whatever it might be, farmer never comes up. And, and that's the mentality and the narrative we want to change is we need to get it that they want to work on a farm. So, you know, initiatives, bringing them out to the farm, showing them, you know, egg in the classroom, other initiatives that are out there that's what we need to push on the narrative of agriculture because otherwise labor as it is right now human resources is one of the biggest risks we have in this industry and we're not really doing anything to fix it yeah i and it strikes me too with human resources often we think immediately about employees but we're forgetting one of the biggest resources that any farmer has which is themselves taking care of themselves making sure that they are improving that resource over time rather than uh sort of like you know denigrating the resource over time uh do you guys talk about that in the program as well well i, I used to laugh because when i used to say hr and have these discussions most guys would say well i'm, I'm a small family farm it's just dad and i we, we don't have hr and I'd look at them and I'd say, you probably have the worst HR because, I mean, part of HR is roles, responsibilities, communication. Most family farms have very limited communication. And I mean, that's why succession and transition 
seem to be, you know, at the forefront of one of the issues in agriculture is passing the farm on is really hard to do when you haven't communicated throughout all the years. So it's, it's those family farms that have probably come to the biggest realization on HR is that having processes in place, even if it's you and your brother or you and your sister or mom and dad, having processes for HR, especially communication, you know, sharing information, looking at metrics, even financial, having them in meetings even. I mean, as an accountant, I could tell you a million times that the kids were never even included in those meetings and they were working on the farm full time. So it's, it's that side of it that I think has surprised a lot of guys is that human resources is there whether you have employees or not. Well, uh, I want to talk about risk. And, you know, we talked about here on the show before that, like, there are certain times that feel more volatile and more risky. I mean, the future is never certain, right? So there's always risk of uncertainty in the future. But uh, it does feel like one of those times where it's uh, a highly volatile time. There's a lot of risk out there in agriculture. Are there certain mindsets related to risk that you all really encourage both internally at, at Hebert Grain Ventures as well as, you know, in Farmer Coach? I think one of the big ones is preparedness. I mean, you're correct. It, it feels like we're on the fence and we're teetering one way or the other most years. And I mean, with where cost of production has gone, you know, the cost of equipment. Last year, the cost of inputs, obviously, they've come down a little bit. But we have some cost of productions and break-evens on farms that, that honestly scare me. And, and I'm, I'm pretty risk tolerant. So when you start talking that, it, it's the long-term planning that I found has, has come in handy of, Let's not just look at a one-year projection. Let's go out a couple years and, and let's test it to see what happens if grain prices drop 20% or inputs go up 20%. We're no longer just planning one year. And that, that's flowed through even on, for example, the crop input side. The last couple of years, we've seen crop inputs go through the roof in cost. I now have farms that are looking at buying fertilizer sheds, which has never, ever been a conversation I've ever had before. Because as a way to hedge fertilizer, they want to buy when it's low and they'll buy a couple years worth. And obviously, this is bigger farm mentality. But even as hedging, I mean, the worst thing about some years like this is that guys who didn't sell early probably are going to come out favorable. And what that's going to do is that's going to give the mindset that, you know what, I shouldn't do any hedging. I shouldn't look ahead. I shouldn't forward contract. That's a bad mentality. And, you know, one year out of 10, yeah, you got lucky this year nine other years that that doesn't work so it's those mindsets that we got to curb and and those discussions on risk of, of let's do long-term planning and let's you know let's see what happens if we buy the tractor today we're not going to hurt this year what about next year and the year after and what happens if interest rates move it's the forward planning i find is the biggest risk mitigator and then whatever we can't mitigate then we start looking at insurance and other products of okay how do we get rid of the remainder of risk that might actually hurt us yeah and who should be involved in those conversations? I think for a lot of farmers, obviously, any stakeholder in the farm, you already mentioned, like get the kids involved for one, but also a lot of farms never thought about bringing in a coach or really integrating people like their attorney or their accountant into these conversations. I mean, is it important for all those people to sort of be involved in, in those discussions? So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of advisory boards as well as peer groups, obviously. But for me, advisory boards are a huge source of information for people. The other thing it does is you put all the experts in a room together, probably lower some bills because everybody's on the same page. You're not having to relay information differently to different you know, professionals out there. So once a year, most of my farms will sit down with their lawyers, accountants, myself, the ownership, any of the main management in the farm and do exactly as you said. We'll 
We'll go over the interest terms. We'll go over the bank, you know, what's coming due next year. We'll go over the tax because obviously tax is still, still a question that has to be answered throughout the year. And then we'll go over operations, what's working, what's not working, because I would rather have five professionals in a room, each giving their opinion on their specialty, than that farmer meeting with the five professionals separately and trying to relay the information back and forth. Plus, it, it creates more of a team environment, which when I started, obviously the accountants of a lot of farms were a little nervous about, you know, what was I taking over? Because their view was CFO, I'm going to do all the accounting and, and lower their fees. And, and that wasn't the objective. The objective was for me to be the internal, them to be the external and to work together to put them in the right place. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Well, I know probably from your public accounting days, you saw a lot of businesses outside of agriculture. And I've heard you talk about there's a lot of things those other businesses are doing, guys, that we probably should be adopting here in agriculture. And I know those might include things like, you know, daily, weekly, monthly scorecards or financial statements. I guess my question with that is, are most farms in a position to actually react on that kind of real time scale? And, and maybe if you could give an example of hey, if you knew what your scorecard was, maybe you could do X, Y or Z. So I, I would say no. I mean, we're, we're in the circumstance now where I've seen enough farms that real-time data, first of all, to get it. Second, to make sure it's accurate and, and make sure everybody on your team sees it. We're not in that position. I mean, we've got probably more data in agriculture than any other industry I've seen, but a lot of guys don't know how to access it, use it, put it together and get the usable data out of it. I mean, even for our farm, it the first couple of years I was here, we were, we were trying to get through of how we'd, how we'd mitigate that and how we'd get the data. And finally, about a year and a half ago, we started doing scorecards. So every week, myself and Christian and our leadership team sits down and we have about 15 to 20 metrics that we want to see every week. So whether that's hours worked for our team to make sure there's not burnout or, you know, we're not over, that's the bank balance. You know, do we actually have cash in the account? You know, what, what bills are coming due in the next couple of weeks? even down to the point of, you know, a repair bill. So you wouldn't think it's a big metric, but the cost of that much equipment on a farm, we're getting to the point where if there's a big expense here and there, we want to know about it. Because, and the other thing is small tools. I mean, I can tell you the one wrench that every farm is missing, it's the 916s, because every one of our tractor cabs didn't have one for a while. So we've got it down to where we're tracking small tools because that measure matters. And that, that's a team function. That's a performance function of, you're in charge of your toolkit. Everything needs to be back in there. And we, we even go as far as auditing those. So it, it's those metrics every week that we see. And then we do monthly financial statements. We compare them to budget. Like it, it's those different real-time data things that we can add that allow us to track. Because most farms get their statements two to three months after year end. They've already made all their decisions by that point. I mean, if they're going to trade equipment, it's going to be in the fall. They're going to make that decision without knowing their financial data. And then all of a sudden they get it in March and say, oh, we were a little tighter than I thought we were. We shouldn't have done that deal. Well, we know ahead of time where we're sitting, when and if we do that deal. Plus, I probably have three years of data showing what happens if we do that deal. So it's the ability to have that information in front of you that honestly, there's not a lot of decisions we have to make on the farm because most of them are right in front of us. They're already made. We already have the data showing. Well, I, we, we talked about kind of the entrepreneurial mindset here uh, that you all are, are implementing in your operation and also helping other farmers implement in theirs. Um, you know, we talked about risk. Uh, we talked about HR and kind of strategic planning. Is there any other aspect of that mindset that we're that I'm, I haven't got us to that that we're, we really need to address here? 
I don't, I don't think those are probably the main ones, Tim. I mean, you can go into the financial side all you want, but I don't, I don't want to bore your listeners. And I mean, we can go into the machinery side as we've got lots of metrics of, you know, how much machinery per acre, that, those kind of discussions. And, and that's what I love about the farmer coach side is you get all those perspectives. And I've got guys who are doing 11,000 acres with one drill. And I got guys who are doing 3,000 acres with the same size drill. It's how you want your farm set up, and that's going to dictate your costs and everything else. So, I mean, there's a million different measures, and there's a million different ways we can strategize over a farm. I just, I like the 30,000 foot picture because to me, changing the operations, I mean, the biggest change in ag going forward, I think, is going to be between the years. I think it's mindset. I, I don't think, I mean, some people will say ag tech, some guys will say, you know, consolidation. I think the guys who can work on their mindset and become stronger in terms of management, they're going to be the successful farms going forward. All right. Well, thought provoking point to end on right there. Mindset is what's going to have the biggest impact on the future of agriculture. Hard to disagree with them because really that's what dictates all those other things he mentioned, like tech or policy or whatever the case may be. So we'll leave links in the show notes for all the various projects, including Farmer Coach and Hebert Group of Companies. Uh, we'll leave links for those in the show notes so you can get in touch with Evan if you'd like. All right, next we'll continue our conversation about strategy in today's Spotlight segment. Although with a little bit of a different twist, rather than farm management strategy, we're gonna be talking about commodity strategy. Mac Marshall is the Vice President of Market Intelligence for the United Soybean Board, where his job as part of the strategy team is to best position farmer leaders and directors to have the best information for making strategic decisions that are going to determine the fate of the soybean industry for years to come. He studied economics as an undergrad and started his career with the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, where he covered livestock, meat, cotton, and consumer packaged goods. This background in economics and commodities analysis led to a job with Monsanto in corporate strategy, then government relations before he joined the soybean board in 2020. He says the strategic decisions made by this farmer-led board have had major impacts on soybean farmers for decades and shares some of the actions they're taking today to make sure the commodity continues to enjoy its demand and its distribution distribution for years to come. One example, he says, is in the use of soy in renewable diesel. Just a little bit of history here. If we go back to the 90s, you know, soy meal has historically always been the driver of value for soy, right? You crush soybeans, 80% of it is soybean meal, and, you know, roughly 20% is going to be the oil fraction. So the meal part's always been very, very important. Back in the 90s, you know, oil was a byproduct. It was an afterthought. There was a glut of it. And the question was, okay, well, what do we do with this? It's not devoid of use. Yes, it's got like food applications and everything, but that market's not big enough to absorb all of the oil that's being produced as we crush for meal. So through soy checkoff investments in, you know, the National Biodiesel Board, which is now Clean Fuels Alliance America, was developed and, you know, basically started a pre-commercial market for biodiesel primarily produced from soybean oil. And I think what's really exciting about that is, you know, that was a tremendous innovation that I think helps retain a lot of value for soy, right? Instead of being an afterthought and a byproduct that maybe doesn't have as much value, now that it's got a, a good usage channel with biodiesel, you know, the, the appreciation of the value of oil is, is better understood by the market. And where we are today in 2023 and really been in this emerging position over the last couple of years, innovations beget other innovations. And the latest wave of innovation that we have, I'd say, in the soy and energy space is, you know, what's happening with renewable diesel. 
So it's a fuel that's different from traditional biodiesel. It's, you know, chemical equivalents to uh, petroleum-based diesel, except that, you know, over the whole life cycle of producing it, it has about 74% fewer emissions over the whole life cycle to get a, a gallon of renewable diesel than you would from petroleum-based diesel. Because rather than, you know, extracting oil out of the ground and refining it, you're growing it year after year after year, and you're still going through the refining process and everything, but it's that extraction piece that uh, you know, naturally emits a lot of carbon in the atmosphere that isn't happening when you're using soybean oil. So, you know, seeing this, this new wave of innovation, certainly, in renewable diesel is incredibly exciting. It's led to a market reevaluation of oil. It's led to, you know, midstream players in the value chain, namely uh, soy crushers, you know, to come together collectively across the, the crushing part of the value chain. There's a tremendous amount of new investment, you know, over the last you know, year or two, plus the next couple of years in expanding crush in the United States. Not as much for meal, but for that oil. So it's an inversion in the market drivers relative to what we had back in the 90s. So all of this is incredibly exciting. And um, one of the things that I've noticed about ag, both working in the nonprofit space where I do now and having worked in the private sector before, is, again, innovations help solve problems. But with each problem you solve, you find other questions, right? And that's kind of the beauty of it. That's how innovation begets more and more and more innovation. You know, so now, as we crush more and more in the years to come for the oil, and we are going to have more meal production, that's going to spur on additional innovations for what we can do with that incremental meal produced. It's a high, high quality product, um, you know, real gold standard as a protein source for animal agriculture. So, which is why, you know, for last fall, I believe, we kicked off the second soy innovation challenge with a focus on soybean meal, looking at existing uses and maybe ways to streamline that to drive additional inclusion, to utilize more soybean meal, to drive better animal performance through use of soy meal. The winner of the Soy Innovation Challenge, there's a company called Satavi, which, um, you know, uses a lighter water extraction method, you know, for, for producing soybean meal. And uh, it's got good applications, particularly uh, in the swine space. But, of course, they're looking at other animal species, too. So it's a sort of thing where if we didn't have this full wave of crush expansion coming on, which, again, is a market outcome of having additional innovation in the energy space. Now we've got innovators thinking about, you know, soy meal and how we utilize it differently in existing channels. And um, we've got another innovation challenge coming up soon that's going to be focused on the new and novel uses. That's what's exciting. You know, an ecosystem of innovation really is a virtuous circle, upward sloping spiral, whatever image you want to use, but it's something that really feeds itself. And um, I don't think I truly had an appreciation for that, or the, the, I'd say, full nexus of innovators that are out there working on this until I've stepped into this role. So it's been, really been eye-opening. Yeah, and, and one thing, you know, that is is certainly a key point here, I think, is that as you're growing more fuel through biodiesel or, you know, low-carbon fuels, uh, you're also growing more food in the way of, of you know, kind of this plant-based protein that either ends up in, in you know, meat or dairy or, or somewhere else. And so I think a lot of people have the misconception that it's kind of one or the other. I'm, I'm really glad you said that. One thing that's really, I think, frustrating to me is when, you know, false dichotomies appear. And I'd say that the food versus fuel narrative is exactly that. It's a false dichotomy. It implies that it's an either or and mutually exclusive proposition. But, you know, as you just outlined there, you know, yes, more oil 
being used in the energy space. But what do you need to do to produce more of that oil? Well, you need to crush more beans. And you crush more beans, you have more soybean meal. What is soybean meal used for? Well, in the U.S., 97% of it goes into animal agriculture. So like the average acre of soybeans in the United States, you can call it 50 bushels an acre. That was close to our yield last year. Um, that's basically what the average has been over the last couple of years. You know, 50 bushels, it's 60 pounds a bushel, that's 3,000 pounds of soybeans. And, you know, once you crush that, you can produce enough soybean oil to create 50 gallons of renewable diesel fuel. You can still have oil left over to meet two people's annual vegetable oil consumption in the United States. And you can produce enough meal to feed chickens. Um, I forget the exact number, but I want to say it's like it's, you know, literally hundreds of pounds of chicken meat, which is, you know, again, multiple people's annual consumption of chicken. All that together. I mean, that's, that's the power of that whole bean coming together, using both major components of it, you know, the meal side and the oil side. Like, you know, you talk about using the whole buffalo or, you know, not letting anything go to waste. This is one of those things. It's kind of beautiful how it comes together, and which is why I don't think of it as food versus fuel. It's food and fuel. It comes together. Absolutely. And and another exciting thing, I think, you know, kind of related to soybean and people who don't think a lot about ag innovation maybe miss this point, which is because all of the acres are there and all the infrastructure is there because it's renewable and we're growing a new crop every single year for all of these various uses, like one small step, let's say we moved an average yield from from. 49 to 50 bushels an acre has a real substantial difference on on sustainability. And it's fun to talk about new ideas and completely new concepts. But uh, those incremental improvements that the soybean industry continues to focus on are really what what moves the needle when it comes to sustainability, in my view. I'm glad you said that. It's a, it's a really important point because, you know, in the United States, you know, we're, we're basically capped out on area that you can put under cultivation. Yes, we have some land in the Conservation Reserve Program, or CRP. It's about 20 million acres uh, across the board. Just for reference, we grow 83.5 million acres of soybeans in 2023. But, you know, that's, that's less productive land. You know, you can't treat it one-to-one -one with the most productive acre that you're going to have in the Corn Belt. So that continuous improvement is at the epicenter of American farming. You know, some years ago, I took my son to uh, to the John Deere facility up in, in Moline. And if you actually go to the corporate headquarters, they've, it's not, not the pavilion, but the corporate headquarters, they've got this whole beautiful showroom, which is literally a timeline showing the whole history of innovation of John Deere, you know, from moving from a horse-drawn plow all the way up to these, you know, autonomous combines we have. Like, it, it's it's absolutely staggering to see how much that has progressed because people don't necessarily think about agriculture as a place where there's a hub of innovation, but, you know, food security, the availability, the production, the efficiency of it, all of that is, is again, central to humanity. So these are things that have to be continuously innovated because guess what? Mother nature and some of the pressures that come from mother nature, such as invasive species, weeds, weather, drought, et cetera, all of that, Nature always finds a way. Nature is also innovating, too. So, like, you know, weeds may become more prominent. We have to think about other ways to, you know, build a more resilient plant or tools that can help enable that plant, you know, to avoid that and continue to thrive. One thing 
as well on continuous improvement and efficiency of production. Again, you know, we're capped out on area in the U.S. more or less. So every incremental bit of production we have to have has to come from sustainable intensification of production. So since 1980, just, you know, there's a couple metrics that are out there between 1980 and 2020, soybean production more than doubled in the United States. And, and over that time, farmers in the U.S. were able to reduce the volumes of inputs you know, in terms of water, you know, emissions, fuel, land use, you know, per bushel produced. This is all documented in, um, there's a field and market study, and they, they do some annual benchmarking on soy and a bunch of other crops to showcase this, right? So it's like if you're growing your units of output, but maybe staying stable on inputs or even decreasing on inputs, that's increasing efficiency, and you're, you're really doing more with less. One way or another, you were doing more because it's through efficiency rather than bringing more land into production, which is, you know, where we are now, if the whole goal is to build a more resilient economy and one that you know has a greater focus on carbon sequestration, combating climate change, everything, you have to do it with the footprint that we have now. All right. Well, I thought that summed up some of the challenges that lie ahead and some of the strategic initiatives on the part of the soy industry to rise to those challenges. Uh, a couple of things I did want to call out briefly before we close is number one, Mac mentioned the soy innovation challenge. And since I know a lot of you are either entrepreneurs or innovators or scientists or all the above, uh, this is something you definitely want to be aware of and probably try to participate in the next time they have one. I'm going to leave a link to more information about this in the show notes so you can check that out and make sure you have that on your radar for whenever the opportunity arises next. Uh, number two, another aspect of our conversation that didn't make the final edit, but I thought was really important to mention is that Mac didn't come from an ag background and he believes, and I of course agree with him, uh, that we need to do more to attract people to this industry who didn't grow up on a farm and maybe don't have an interest in farming, uh, but can contribute to agricultural innovation. He said that the future of innovation in this industry, the culture of innovation we have, depends on this ability to attract others from the outside. And I do think we sort of pay this lip service in agriculture a lot, but I know Mac is passionate about it and I can't really point to a lot of tangible efforts that specifically focus on this area. So I want to thank him for mentioning it. I did want it to end up in the episode and I appreciate him kind of getting my wheels turning on that topic as well. All right, well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you to Evan Schott and Mac Marshall for being on the show. Uh, thank you to the Soy Checkoff for their support of agricultural innovation and this podcast. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Mm-hmm.